0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick.
1: And it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault. This episode originally aired on August 13th, 2019. And it was uh, prehistoric Transylvania.
0: That's right. uh, A tale of giant uh, pterosaurs feasting on pony-sized dwarf sauropods. So it's it's just fun for the entire family. You are standing in the halls of Suchel Castle. You approach a golden chalice resplendent, in an embossed spiral of geologic time that winds round from rim to base. At the merest touch, the chalice chimes and shivers, dragging you back through two hundred years of history, to the castles raising in the Transylvanian wilds of Hattig. You grasp the golden chalice, and time sheds from your perspective like the skin of a great serpent, spiraling out in every direction as you descend through the depths of centuries, millennia, through eons of evolutionary change and geologic upheaval, till the chalice slips from your trembling grip and leaves you in an age of wonders. Hattig as you knew it
1: is gone, now a paleo-island rising up out of the late Cretaceous Sea. You glimpse movement and note the approach of several sauropods, only these are not the hulking giants you're familiar with. They seem dwarf creatures, the size of ponies. You could ride one if only you dared to approach its alien flesh. But before you can muster the courage, the creatures scatter from the clearing. Predatory theropods, too, flee back into the forests as a great shadow descends from the sky, a pterosaur to rival the dragon bower of myth. It lands before you. It towers like a siege engine, but you've already thrown yourself to the ground. You're fumbling for the golden chalice so that it might take you home or take you further back, anywhere to escape the jaws of Hatsigopteryx, Then Bema. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, if you can probably guess from that uh, fun little cold uh, open that we uh, prepared for you there, uh, we are going to be traveling back in time in this episode via paleontology uh, back to prehistoric Transylvania. That is so exciting. Robert, I can tell you are just itching to like write a novel about this, <laughs> this ancient paleo island. Yeah, okay. yeah I was really uh, inspired uh, by this. Uh, and uh, this is one of those uh, situations where I was inspired by reading a dinosaur book to my son. Uh Uh, There's a, a, a book titled Atlas of Dinosaur Adventures by Emily Hawkins and illustrated by Lucy Leatherland. And it has these wonderful, uh, you know, big two-page spreads that show uh, a different part of the world and an idea of what the, you know, prehistoric life might have looked like. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had a spread; they they cover every continent, and they had a spread for Haiti, uh, showing like what what prehistoric Transylvania, uh, what prehistoric Romania would have uh, con- might have consisted of. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I have to admit, despite having uh, you know covered uh, sauropods on the show, and certainly we've talked about Uh, gigantic pterosaurs quite recently, uh, I wasn't really familiar with this corner of the prehistoric world. It clearly
1: it set off a little explosion in your mind I can sense the energy coming off of you on the subject of Hottig. and I I wanted to say that your opening reminded me of two different things the poem directive by Robert Frost which is about going back in time and it also involves a chalice oh does it uh, yeah right. it, huh. it, yeah it talks about like I wonder like if I read it and forgot kind of about stuff. it
0: or if or if I just uh uh, you know, came up with that idea. You know, via some connection to things that were inspired by what he wrote.
1: Oh, uh, you should look it up again. It's a great okay. poem,
0: directive. I uh, mean, uh, but
1: it also it was like a cross between directive and a sound of thunder.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And I was, I guess, I also was definitely thinking about. Um, the time machine. Uh-huh. Um, you know, who can escape um, uh, uh, Wells's time machine when considering the past at all? I mean, anytime you're thinking about dinosaurs, you can, and, uh, and other prehistoric creatures uh, such as the pterosaurs, you can't help but imagine like traveling back and encountering them. That's the ultimate frame of reference, right? What if I was standing next to one?
1: But this is the ultimate uh, real monster versus fictional monster crossover because because the, well, not to call dinosaurs monsters, but you know they're the they're one of the cl- closest things to monster myths, oh, to yeah. dragon myths that you've got in the real world. So you've got like a, a really interesting sort of dinosaur fossil site with with interesting biogeographical qualities that we will explore as we go on in the uh, in the rest of the episode. But it's right there in Transylvania, right? It's, yeah. it's vampire country.
0: Indeed. And, you know, we will encounter uh, a fossil that has been dubbed Dracula. Oh, boy. By the paleontologists covering it. Uh, how about those pony-sized sauropods? You didn't make that up, did you? No, no. That's, all. that's one of, one of like, the really amazing things about, um, about this particular scenario and, and ultimately about everything we're going to talk about in this episode is that, is that we're looking at an example, uh, a prehistoric example of island dwarfism and island gigantism, also known as the, the island factor or the island rule. And this is a concept we've talked about on the show before.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. It's come up several times. It has to do with body size uh, in, in populations of animals that become isolated. Well, really just that become isolated because it doesn't have to be on islands. Islands is just the easiest way for it to happen. Like another way it can happen are in these interesting uh, ecosystems known as sky islands mm-hmm. where um, – I don't know if you've ever –
0: Would you see like, a, like
1: essentially a plateau? It could be the, like that. Uh, one great example that I've been to is like in uh, Big Bend National Park in Texas so you you have desert and then in the middle of this there are some mountains rising up and as you go up the slopes of the mountains and in between them at the higher altitudes, actually, the, the climate changes, right? Because at higher altitudes, it almost kind of mimics higher latitudes. Mm-hmm. And so the types of plants you find change, the types of animals you find change, it goes from sort of desert to a weird kind of forest up, up in the higher parts of the mountains. And so this can function kind of like an island, right? Because there are creatures that can survive up in those mountain forests, but can't traverse the vast expanses of desert down below. Or if they do, it, it can be very dangerous. And the are you know, might not make it to anywhere they could survive. So anyway, you know, wherever you have uh, a case where species can survive in a very limited geographical range and they're cut off from the rest of the continental populations, you can have these cases of island gigantism or island dwarfism. Basically, smaller species tend to become larger and larger species tend to become smaller. And there are multiple reasons for this, but mainly it's that the smaller species tend to become larger because on islands there is a lack of predators that they would encounter on the mainland that would be a check on their their growth. Meanwhile, larger species tend to become smaller, presumably because of a lack of energy resources that you would uh, find on the mainland. There's less to eat on the island, so it actually pays to have a smaller body that requires less food. A commonly cited example of this is like uh, the the mammoths that were found on certain islands, like the gigantic Columbian mammoth evolved a a dwarf variety – on the Channel Islands off the coast of California, there mm-hmm. was also the uh, the Wrangell Island mammoths that were, the, I think, the last woolly mammoths on Earth that went extinct around 4,000 years ago were smaller than their continental varieties. And the basic
0: idea with these examples is that they were able to, to reach these islands mm-hmm. uh, when the, the water level was lower, mm-hmm. and then they end up trapped there, essentially, and life goes on and evolution uh, continues. Right. Life goes on, but there's less to eat. So mm-hmm. if you're trying to make a bigger body, you're more
1: likely to starve to death. So the ones with genes for smaller bodies tend to be the ones that survive. And so obviously we think about, you know, examples of this in the recent past or in the modern world, but the same principles of evolution and and energy and food dynamics would have been in place in the time of dinosaurs, right? Exactly. Uh, So you could run into exactly the same issue. And it seems like that's exactly what's going on
0: in this ancient Transylvanian island called Hodge. Yes, yeah, 66 million years ago this region was an island. In the large body of water that uh, we we refer to now as the Tethys Sea, and this would have covered large parts of Europe up through the Late Cretaceous period, and it would have uh, re- and it would have caused uh, th- th- this uh, re- resulting group of islands to essentially be a European archipelago. And uh, German-born paleontologist Hans Dieter Seuss uh, describes it as a quote: "Shallow epicontinental sea dotted with variously sized islands." Hmm. Uh, Seuss is senior scientist and curator of vertebrate paleontology at the National Museum of Natural History uh, of the Smithsonian Institution. And uh, he even has a dinosaur named after him. Uh, So, you know, he's the real deal. It's a pachycephalosaur, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Pachycephalosaur uh, hansususia. Hansusia, Hansusia. Always a good sign in a paleontologist. The amount of honor is directly proportional to how hard it is to say. (laughs) It's a little known fact. We, We should also note that you know we're we're talking a long time ago here. So it's not merely an issue, oh, Europe was flooded back then. Right. Um, it, you know, as uh, Seuss points out in a 2010 paper titled An Unusual Dinosaur from the Late Cretaceous of Romania and the Island Rule, there was, there was complex uh, t- uh, tectonic activity along the northern margin of the western Tethys. And then there was volcanic activity that resulted uh, in these Cretaceous islands rising up. Mm-hmm. So, and, and the largest of these uh, covered much of what we now know as the Iberian Peninsula and France extending into Central Europe now this particular island in the tethys sea uh, uh, which is you know which corresponds to the modern region of uh, of Hattig, uh, transylvania This would have been roughly, I'm reading, uh, 80,000 square kilometers or uh, 30,888 square miles. And to put that in perspective, modern-day Ireland is uh, uh, roughly uh, 32,595 square miles in size. So sort of Ireland size. Yeah, sort of a, yeah, a a Romanian Ireland um, that's (laughs) crawling with uh, odd-sized prehistoric creatures. So that's how we came to to have these islands, roughly, these European islands in the late Cretaceous, Uh, and... uh, And yeah, we ended up with various creatures stranded upon these islands uh, and they were subject to evolutionary changes that we refer to uh, roughly as the island rule. Mm -hmm. So the titanic sauropod is humbled to the size of a pony and other creatures that we'll get to rise to much larger sizes. And who would read such a such a thing from the fossil record? You know, you might you might think, especially given um, uh, you know that that paper I just cited from 2010, you might think, well, this is a fairly recent discovery, right? You especially might think that if you uh, you know like me, were not familiar with this this marvelous uh, world of, of of oversized and undersized prehistoric beasts. Uh, but uh, to look to the, the origin of these discoveries, we have to look uh, to a rogue Austro-Hungarian Baron of the late nineteenth. 19- and early 20th century all
1: right let's take a break and when we come back we will meet the baron all right we're back so it's time to meet the baron a a character who plays a major role in the history of the the science and discovery of uh the the paleo island Hottig. and this baron is baron franz nopcha von felso silvas
0: who lived 1877 to 1933 yes baron nopcha and and I have to have to admit when we started this episode I really didn't expect there to be a fascinating human story in the midst of all of this even though of mm-hmm. course paleontology is always a human story because paleontologists are the humans who who uncover these uh, secrets of the past mm-hmm. uh, but I thought this was just going to be all um, you know rampaging prehistoric beasts right. right. But uh, this is a fascinating individual, and smithsonian.com has a great article on Noxia titled "Uh, History Forgot This Rogue Aristocrat Who Discovered Dinosaurs and Died Penniless" by Vanessa Veselka, uh, which goes into far more detail on his life than we're going to explore here, especially concerning some some tragic uh, later portions of his life. Uh, He was a really interesting figure, though, and this is a great
1: article, by the way. This is one that I think listeners just should go – go off and read, definitely.
0: Yeah, he is, you know, it's tempting to want to just sum him up in a few words, like say, oh, he was, you know, a a gentleman scientist towards the end of the time period in which that gentleman scientist was a thing. And that's, I think, mostly true. But then there are all these other weird dimensions to his character. Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, he was born into privilege and aristocracy but he also seemed to live with what we would now likely classify as like as a manic depressive disorder. Mm-hmm. You know, he was he was apparently prone to periods of intense focus and energy which it is good when you're in, engaging in uh, you know early fossil study and some of the other activities he was involved in but then of course the flip side is that, that there were these morose periods as well. Uh-huh. He's also described as like being Absolutely
1: brilliant in a scientific sense, and mostly self-taught. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, just learning from like writing to people and getting them to send him books, and then teaching yes. himself subjects like uh, biology and geology that you know he didn't have formal training in, and then making all of these discoveries about dinosaurs and paleontology and about deep time, but also uh, not always. Not always having the the right kind of social skills, <laughs> yeah. within the the professional context to get his work accepted. Like apparently he was very rude, and he was, or could be very rude, but could also be very charming.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and uh, yeah, so much of it again was he was self taught. He's mm-hmm. he's writing other experts and getting them to send him books. Or there's also the story of him him going off to university and bringing this fossil with him mm-hmm. uh, from uh, you know from, from the, the the area of Romania in uh, you know, who he was from. And, uh, and the professor there was like, he was like, what is this? Uh, help, help me figure this out. And he's like, I don't know. You go figure it out. Yeah. Essentially like send him back with it, which, uh, you know, which as the author points out of the Smithsonian piece, um, you know, uh, v- v- Veselka says that's either like some great tutelage where the professor mm-hmm. is like, oh, I'm going to grow this young mind by inspiring them to go uh, find the answer themselves. Or it's like a really lazy or overworked <laughs> professor who's like, I don't have time to help you, uh, you know, m- decipher this rock. Go do it yourself. Right. But do it himself. He did. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so he's one of these remarkable, uh, you know, accounts of uh, he has kind of like a self-made gentleman scientist this uh, though obviously had had a certain uh, uh, advantage on the situation by being born into the aristocracy well yeah th- that's a common thing you see in the history of science that that a lot of the great
1: scientists of the 19th century say were were sort of aristocrat types uh, and uh, obviously I don't think that's because aristocrats are better at sciences because they had the resources and the leisure to mm-hmm. pursuit to like to get into these pursuits if you' are a farmer working night and day like you, you don't have the time and the money to go into the the
0: sciences. Yeah, yeah. So he was, and then and I said he's, like I said, he's he's kind of emerging towards the end of the gentleman science being a thing at all, mm-hmm. and certainly towards the end of his career and the end of his life, he was kind of shut out from scientific circles, mm-hmm. uh, and some of the ideas that he he was, he was promoting during his life were ultimately ideas that were not widely accepted. Though inter- interestingly enough, would become widely accepted many decades later. Um, in the 1970s, for example, is, is a time when people started looking back at him and saying. Oh, here's this uh, interesting character uh from the history books. He, you know, he published 150 scientific papers in his life and he identified 25 uh, genera of reptiles and five different dinosaurs, mm-hmm. but we've largely forgotten him and we don't celebrate him at all. Uh and, and people started, you know, looking back and realizing who he was and 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 what he what he had uh, discovered here. And uh, yeah, there are other aspects to his, of to his life that are all interesting as well. Um, he was an adventurous uh, individual. He served as a spy for the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but he seems to have largely used his service to the state as a vehicle for pursuing his interest in geography uh, and geology and the study of the Albanian people. Right. There seems to be this, like, mix of
1: interests here because, like, he apparently just loved the Albanian culture and, like, wanted to study it and, you know, document all their customs and everything like that. Uh, But the, the government that was funding his work basically wanted a sort of... You know, the, the early 20th century equivalent of like a CIA fact book on a country. You right. Know? Like, yeah. They wanted intelligence that could be used and could maybe be used in warfare or something like that later on. So that's the money going into what he's doing. But he but he apparently was just in love with Albania and its people and and its culture.
0: And at one point, even threw his name in the hat to potentially be a king. Oh yeah but there's there's that whole uh, storyline um again i encourage everyone to to read that uh, that article about him but again his uh, in his scientific pursuits he was very much ahead of his time uh for starters the theory of continental drift is now widely, if not universally accepted, but this was not the case during uh, Nobch's life, yet he presented some of the most credible geologic evidence at the time for continental drift. And Then, of course, when it came to fossils, this is where he made his arguably his greatest uh, impact. Mm-hmm. He discovered some some very curious fossils in the Hantik region, many of which were noticeable for being quite smaller than examples that were popping up elsewhere. And he argued that these were examples of, uh, of of the island rule in action. That the the Hattic region was once an island in a prehistoric sea. Now, we'll get to the specific dinosaurs and prehistoric creatures in a little bit, uh, but just, just consider. He found titanosaur sauropods the size of mere ponies, despite the fact that titanosaurs are the largest land animals uh, that we know to have ever existed, reaching sizes of, you know, we're talking 121 feet or 37 meters long and uh, and weights of somewhere in the neighborhood of, uh, of, of 76 tons, and yet, he finds fossil evidence of these multiple, noticeably smaller uh, sauropods, and it just raised the question: Well, what were they? So, well, I mean, the obvious thing is that they're juveniles, dummy, right? <laughs> aren't they? Aren't they just baby sauropods? Yeah. That well, that was what critics argued that these were just juveniles, uh, and uh, and certainly one of the more alarming things about sauropods is that they do grow to such alarming size from relatively small eggs. Mm-hmm. I mean, sauropods are, are weird and strange creatures, uh, you know, that we're, we're still, you know, figuring out, all, you know, all the, uh, you know, the answers to, to the mysteries of their biology. And so, you know, the, just the fact that you find some small ones, you know, it does seem like it could be, it could be a, one possible explanation could be that, well, these were just the juveniles. Um, and and this read doesn't seem to have completely fallen out of fashion. As recently as 2007, a paper in Historical Biology by Jean Lelouf argued that... Uh that some Hottig sauropod fossils might suggest, quote, age-class communities among sauropod populations. Oh, so this is like a gang of sauropod youths. Yes, exactly. Like a, yes, a street gang of, of youths. Uh, you know, and I, I believe we've discussed uh, this sort of thing in terms of crocodilians and maybe Komodo dragons on the show in the past. Mm-hmm. The idea that some animals experience tremendous body size changes and therefore corresponding changes in diet and behavior and may be thought of as living in their own uh, uh, niche during different phases of their life either alone or in groups yeah different life phases they're almost kind of like different animals yeah so, you know like a, a small komodo dragon is going to eat different food than a full-grown adult komodo dragon and the same might be the case with uh, with like a, a juvenile sauropod versus of course a fully grown towering sauropod hmm. But according to Seuss, subsequent bone studies have backed up the theory that we're seeing the effects of the island rule in the bones of these fun-sized sauropods. (laughs) Basically, in uh, 2010, a team of paleontologists looked at the microstructure of the bones to determine age and growth patterns. And they showed that uh, this particular sauropod, uh, these pony sauropods, were fully grown adults with small body sizes. And this is from uh, a paper from Benton et al., Published in paleoclimatology, paleoecology.
1: Right, I think so. It mentioned in uh, in one of the articles we were reading. I think it was that uh, Smithsonian article. That his methodology was that he actually did molecular analysis of the bones, like that. Nopcha was able to determine that the dinosaurs were small adults and not young because he was able to like look at the layers of bone, uh, like uh, osteogenesis rings right. within the within cross sections of these bones.
0: Yeah. So or the fossils, I mean. Yeah. So I mean, he was not just you know making a wild guess here. He was forming the best scientific hypothesis that he could uh, based on the material, and and I have to say though I. I guess I guess it's just the idea of pony-sized sauropods mm-hmm. is just so attractive. I'm I, 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 so Flintstones. It is, and <laughs> there it, it was like there was some movie growing up too. It was, I think it may have just been called The Last Dinosaur, uh-huh. or like maybe the dinosaur had a name. But I remember there being like a pony-sized sauropod, some sort of puppet that uh, that the, the actors interact with. Uh, I remember seeing that as a as a child. So this probably. Uh, you know, brings back some of those memories, but then also I mentioned when I was telling my son about this reading uh, to him from that uh, dinosaur book I mentioned earlier. You know, he was instantly in love with this idea of pony-sized sauropods uh-huh. because I guess the idea is if it is pony-sized, you could ride it. You could walk up to the gentle sauropod and jump on its back and go for a, a wild ride <laughs> through the Late Cretaceous jungle. That's so good. I don't know if this is the same last dinosaur you were thinking of. I, I just
1: I was trying to call something out of the deep. Ch- childhood memory and it is a, a it is a dinosaur from an animated series I think it was like French or something called Denver the last <laughs> dinosaur and it is a he's like a hip skateboarding sunglasses wearing dinosaur oh. with a kind of with a with head feature that looks like a mohawk and
0: I can't tell if he's supposed to be a sauropod or a theropod. It seems n- unclear. No, I don't think I've seen that one. Uh, this would have been some live action uh, affair that I'm thinking of. Okay. Like a, like a VHS rental for sure.
1: Well, maybe after we get out of the studio today, we can go watch some
0: Denver The Last Dinosaur and see how it does. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take a, another break. But when we come back, we'll discuss some of the specific prehistoric creatures that we uh, we, we have thus far encountered in Hottig. <laughs> All right, we're back and it's time to discuss the pony size Magyarosaurus. Okay, let's go for a ride. Just saddle him up. All right. So again, while while some have considered them to be juveniles, perhaps living in their own, you know, social group apart from the uh, giant adults, bone evidence seems to suggest that they were fully grown adults, and this would, you know, probably be perhaps one of nature's most impressive displays of the island effect, humbling even the mighty titanosaur into a form, you know, more befitting of this uh, Late Cretaceous Ireland-sized island in what is now known as Romania. Uh uh-huh. so sauropods in general uh, again are just strange and mysterious creatures perhaps some of the strangest creatures ever to walk the earth I mean they they push the boundaries of what's possible in a terrestrial organism like what's sustainable what's even you know morphologically possible uh-huh and, uh, you know, and if these little guys are, are just a ripple in an already amazing glimpse of uh, the prehistoric past, I mean, we've been seeing sauropods our entire lives, right? I mean, we've seen them in, yeah. in cartoons, in toys, and you kind of take them for granted, right? There's just wow. this thing that Fred Flintstone slides down the neck of or the tail of, I can't remember, uh, at, the, at the end of his workday. <laughs> Getting uh, petted by Sam Neill. Yeah, yeah, they're just kind of the, yeah, Jurassic Park, they're just kind of the backdrop. They don't really do anything right um well because they're not a meaty disorder but they are their own mystery you know when you start getting into the details of uh, you know how they fed themselves and mm-hmm. and uh, and even the various discussions about you know, just how something this big lives yeah i mean it, it, it
1: starts well as you were just alluding to it sort of makes you question the what are the extremes of what an animal can be and how it can survive like um you know obviously we've talked about giant animals on the show before and about how they're they're just sort of like Problems that you might not even expect when animals start getting past a certain size and volume—problems with like heat distribution, yeah. or like uh, or like heat exchange—and of course there'd be like energy issues, especially. So sauropods are—you know—these are, you know, are going to be herbivores, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're not metasaurus. so they're needing to eat plant matter in order to sustain a body the size of a boat or bigger. You know, so like you just start to wonder like how could they possibly eat enough to survive how could they do it
0: yeah it feels like biology just out of control to a certain extent yeah. and, uh, and and in a sense you i guess you could look at it like that you know like here is a form that is totally unsustainable if anything drastic happens to the environment mm-hmm. and of course drastic things did happen to the environment right uh, and these were these were not certainly not the forms to survive uh, the, the late cretaceous extinction event but uh, yeah, I would love to come back and do perhaps a whole episode on sauropods in the future, or bring on uh, you know a guest, an expert who can talk to us about uh, the weird mysteries of sauropod life.
1: Totally. Now, right at the beginning of the episode, we mentioned a, a, uh, a pterosaur called Hatsagopteryx. I uh, know this one caught your fancy, Robert. So, w- what's the deal with Hatsagopteryx? All
0: right. So we've we've talked about uh, the flying pterosaurs on the show before prehistoric flying reptiles that took to the air on a membrane of flesh that stretched between their ankles and their greatly elongated fourth finger. So creepy to see the skeletons and realize that the wing is a finger. Yeah. <laughs> because it's a, <laughs> dra- it's a distinctly different wing arrangement compared to the vertebrate flight of birds and bats. Mm-hmm. Uh, closer to in- bats, it seems like. Closer to bats, yeah. yeah. But still, you know, very much its own thing. And of course, we've recently discussed the mighty uh, Quetzalcoatlus. The uh, the, this uh, this godlike giant uh, pterosaur that uh, was found in the late Cretaceous, but in North America, and we often speak of it as being uh, perhaps the largest creature to ever fly, Mm -hmm. Uh, if indeed it truly did fly. And and most paleontologists seem to think that it did, but there is some disagreement there. Uh, we'll get into an example of that. Uh-huh. But, it, you know, it, it's it's ultimately only one of the, the sky lords of old uh, because we had, certainly had uh, had Q, the winged serpent, but we also had uh, Hatsagopteryx. Both are of the same family as Darkidae, so named for the Persian dragon, Azdaha. So Hatsagopteryx was A a pterosaur, a winged reptile that when it was standing on the ground – uh, would have been as tall as a giraffe. Yeah. And that's, that's on, we're not talking like reared up on its hind legs exactly, though its morphology is, is very distinct. We, we have a, an image of this creature and an artistic rendering that you'll find on, uh, on our homepage at stufftoblowyourmind.com. But as it's, uh, you know, it's, it's standing there on its hind legs and on its, its wings, it would have been as tall as a giraffe with this enormous head. And if it were to actually spread its wings, it would have a wingspan of roughly 36 feet. It had this broad skull. Uh, and and it, you look at examples of, of the skull, or at least uh, ideas of what the full skull would have looked like. And it, it almost looks too big to fly. But apparently, it was made flyable by a, a polystyrene-like structure that gave it tremendous strength, but also lightness. Yeah, this is the thing you see with
1: birds and you see with pterosaurs, because their bones have to be very light in order to fly, so they often have a kind of hollow or uh, low-density structure.
0: Now, one of the really cool and ultimately um, you know, nightmarish things about uh, Hatsagopteryx and, and, uh, and, and its you know, large pterosaur kin is that regardless of their flying ability, to whatever extent they you know, were or were not capable of flying... Their fossils suggest that they were rather adept at moving about on all fours on the ground, and not not only just moving about, but hunting their prey in this fashion. So, you know, great folded living cargo planes that ta- tower over the dwarf herds of of sauropods, scooping them up in their powerful jaws and gobbling them down uh that's that's ultimately the the vision that we're left with it's astounding to imagine this thing that this form that has evolved to take to the air and then returned a giant to to the earth and then ruling over these uh, these diminished uh, sauropods
1: yeah it's not really similar to what you see with birds for example because birds don't crawl with their wings right you know, when birds move around on the ground they tend to they walk on two feet they're more like the theropod uh, dinosaur design. They walk on the two feet, and they got their wings folded up. These are more like. Sometimes you can see bats crawl this way, where they've got the they've got the winged hands that are part of the wings, but they still use them to crawl quadrupedally. And so when you see representations of this I've seen it animated the way mm-hmm. these giant pterosaurs would crawl. It looks messed up. It, it's really scary.
0: Yeah, I think bats are probably the, the, the best uh, you know contemporary uh, comparison. Uh, particularly, there is a, a type of, of, um, of bat that you'll find in New Zealand, uh, the, the Mysticinidae bats. And they spend much of their time on the ground. They're, they're certainly capable of flight, but they, they crawl around. A lot of the time uh so they have their claws have extra projections that aid in digging around in the dirt and uh and and climbing uh on the on on the sides of trees Mm -hmm. and their wings fold back in a unique way so they're you know it's more streamlined so when it's in in ground mode it uh, it really looks more like some manner of rodent uh, in a sense i mean there's it's still clearly a bat but uh, but it does seem like this is, you're seeing a similar situation where this 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 winged form has taken back to the earth and uh, due to uh, uh you know the the particular uh, you know relaxation of the the predatory pressure uh, in its environment is able to sort of become uh, you know a big deal on the ground again Oh, okay. So, hatzegopteryx, big on the ground, big on the ground, a big deal on the ground. I, I guess that's one of the things that's just that's just so um, you know topsy turvy about the scenario, right? Is that again the small sauropods and the giant winged creature that doesn't necessarily have to fly anymore mm-hmm. that they can just uh, you know roam about on all fours and gobble up uh, st- you know whatever it pleases uh-huh. with virtually no predators, and that's that's key too to uh, figuring out. Why X was so big? It would have had no predators and an abundance of food. And here's the thing: perhaps even larger food than they would have found elsewhere, because they have the, this enormous meal. That, you know, they're, they're probably not eating a sauropod uh, in uh, other scenarios, but here. Well, no, of course not. I mean, unless they're maybe scavenging or something. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. but 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 here, suddenly the sauropods are smaller, uh, perhaps even bite size or fun size, if uh-huh. you will. And so they grew large and dominant, uh, lords of earth and sky, in keeping with the the mahars of Edgar Rice Burroughs' fiction. These were the uh, the, the sort of pterosaur like creatures that ruled over one of his fictional worlds. <laughs> Fattened on sour ponies. Yes. <laughs> uh, there is even one particularly large uh, fossil that they uh, found in Hattig uh, that they actually dubbed Dracula. And this was in, uh, in, in 2009. And they found fragments of an even larger specimen or at least a, a specimen with a far larger lower jaw uh, in 2018. Michael Habib, an expert on pterosaurs at the University of Southern California, told nationalgeographic.com in 2018 that he believed that this latest specimen was – this latest specimen especially was probably too large to fly, Uh, that it may have flown when it was younger, but then it basically reaches the point where it's it's large enough and it doesn't have to anymore, Mm -hmm. which is interesting because we're kind of coming back to this idea of a creature growing – and its sort of mode of um, of operations, its uh, its diet changing. So you could have a creature here that, you know, when it's young, it's still flying from place to place. But then once it reaches a a significant size, it has no need to fly anymore. It maybe has limited ability to even uh, achieve powered flight uh, anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not an issue because it's a, a towering pterosaur monster that eats all the uh, the dwarf uh, sauropod babies that it wants. And then Michael, Michael Habib, he compares this to the elephant birds of Madagascar, uh, which, were, which went extinct roughly 1,000 years ago, but were a large flightless bird that thrived in that part of the world, cut off from the rest of Africa. Big death ostrich. Yeah. But uh, there are a few other examples worth touching on here. Uh, for instance, there's uh, uh, a This was a hadrosaur or a duck-billed dino. Um, another variety I'd love to come back to and discuss in detail on the show because they're so alien and also in some ways a great example of kind of peak dinosaur prior to the late Cretaceous extinction event. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this particular specimen in, in Hottig was uh, was smaller than a modern crocodile, so roughly like five meters long or so. Um, and, and, this was, uh, and, and this was one that would have seemed uh, almost mountable to a human if you were standing next to it mm-hmm. or at least while, while this um, hadrosaur was on all fours because other hadrosaurs were considerably larger and would have towered over humans, particularly when they reared up on their uh, – into bipedal form. Uh-huh. And here's another interesting fact about uh, Tomatosaurus: A fossil of a juvenile specimen was discovered in 2016 with evidence of a benign tumor in its lower jaw. Hmm. And this is a first for a dinosaur fossil and ultimately proof that, that uh, such tumors are not mere modern biological realities. Oh, of course. And then there's uh, Baldar Bondok. Okay, and this is a, we we referenced this name earlier in the cold open, but uh, this particular species was named uh, after the dragon of Romanian legend. And so this would have been a theropod hunter in keeping with raptors such as Velociraptor. And it's one of the Dromaeosaurids, uh, but it differs from other Dromaeosaurid fossils because it had only two functional digits on its hand. Most of its relatives would have had three for proper grasping. So reduced ability in this department, but it also had more digit functionality in its large talon feet. Mm. And so uh, this is what Seuss has to say about this. Thus, each foot of Baldar sported a double set of these large claws, which were likely used for seizing and disemboweling prey. The robust hind limb shows extensive fusion of bones in its proportionally short distal portion, with formation of a tibiotarsus and a tarsometatarsus. Uh, These unusual features suggest that Baldur was capable of delivering powerful strikes with its feet. And Seuss uh, contends that these changes were likely due to the island effect as well. So just another peculiar example of, uh, of, of, a, of a fossil species that was not found elsewhere but was, uh, was warped, was changed, and uh, took on uh, a special form uh, due to its uh, isolation on this island. You got the, the gutting kick.
1: yeah. Well, now maybe we – I think you've changed my mind on my number one uh, time travel destination. I think <laughs> I want to go to Hottig.
0: Well, I would definitely visit if it were – visit uh, Hottig if Hottig were uh, you know, a special exhibit at a Jurassic Park type scenario. Uh, but that brings me back to my uh, my past um, rants about Jurassic Park. Like, Why do we keep coming back to the same and in many cases outdated – um, dinosaur and prehistoric forms when we could be encountering these creatures uh-huh. like this should be the next Jurassic Park film in my opinion is uh you know don't bring back the uh the the, the T-Rex don't bring back the velociraptors don't change their color uh just so you can sell a slightly different uh, toy uh <laughs> to the kids uh no still you can still sell plenty of toys to the kids but make it uh, make it these you know make it uh, pony sized uh, sauropods make it uh, uh i think so Gopter X would make a, a terrific uh, CGI villain. I think that, that yeah, there's a
1: lot of potential here. I mean, people would want to have they'd have reason for bringing back a pony-sized sauropod if they could have a petting zoo. Kids could ride them. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That
0: that's more plausible plot-wise. All right, so there you have it. We're gonna we're gonna leave it right there. Um, again, that uh, that really cool children's dinosaur book, uh, Atlas of Dinosaur Adventures by Emily Hawkins and illustrated by Lucy Leatherhead. Uh, it's definitely in print. Definitely worth picking up. And I I think it's worth picking up even if you don't have any kids in your house. Or in your life, if you love dinosaurs and prehistoric creatures, and or uh, you know uh, geology and geography, mm-hmm. it's 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 a great uh, just if a tabletop book if nothing else. But you can also spend uh, lots of time reading through it with young ones uh, and uh, and feeding their need for uh, for dinosaurs and pterosaurs, uh, etc. Um, also obviously we we surely have listeners who either reside uh, or are from Romania or have visited Romania and perhaps you've uh, you've visited some of these these areas uh, so some of the articles we were looking at mentioned that you know there are you know, attempts to celebrate uh, paleontology in Romania mm-hmm. uh, various uh, museums that have you know the, the efforts that have been put together so we would love to to uh, read your field reports on uh, on Romanian paleontology uh, and, uh, and and ultimately just you know the 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 world that we are uh, discussing in this episode only you know millions of years later absolutely also send us your Baron friends nopsha fanfic in the meantime if you want more episodes of stuff to blow your mind go to stuff to blow and if you want to support the show the best thing you can do is to rate and review wherever you have the power to do so but also make sure you have subscribed and hey. We have another podcast titled Invention, and yeah. I think you should give that a shot. You should subscribe to that as well. And you might be thinking, oh, I don't know, Robert and Joe, I really like these trippier episodes, these weirder episodes that you put together. I don't know how trippy and weird technology is. Well, I just want to uh, to read you a quick quote from Terrence McKenna on <laughs> technology to remind you uh, otherwise. He says um, – We take in matter that has a low degree of organization. We put it through mental filters and we extrude jewelry, gospels, space shuttles. This is what we do. We are like coral animals embedded in a technological reef of extruded psychic objects. And that's exactly (laughs) what we talk about every week on Invention. Couldn't have put it better, yeah. So make sure you check it out. Make sure you have subscribed to Invention. Subscribe to Invention.
1: Anyway, huge thanks to our audio producers. Seth Nicholas Johnson and Maya Cole. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at Stuff to Blow